All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Washington University Emergency Medicine Journal Club podcast, September 2014. Well, as you probably noticed, it is November right now. We're actually recording this in October. It's coming out in November. We did the Journal Club in September. Things got pushed back a little bit, so sorry for the delay, but here it is. I'm joined this month by our third year resident, Maya Dorset, who helped pick and choose this topic, thrombolytics in submassive or intermediate PE. Maya, tell us about the topic and why you chose it. Well, one of the main reasons I chose it is I think that this is a patient that we all see in the emergency department. That patient who has a large size PE, has either an elevated trope or an abnormal echo, but is otherwise normotensive or satting reasonably well. And I think the data up to this point left everything sort of a therapeutic dilemma as whether or not these are patients that would benefit either immediately or over the longer term from thrombolysis. Yeah, we actually covered this topic back in 2010, and none of the current studies that we're looking at had been published yet, and quite frankly, at the end of that journal club, we were sort of left still wondering whether there was any utility to giving thrombolytics in these patients. All the data looked at changes in echo findings rather than any patient important outcomes. So I was pretty optimistic coming into this, thinking, wow, now we've got some pretty good data. Let's look at what it shows, and we'll take a look and see what we think. So the first study we looked at was the PATHOS study. This was fibrinolysis for patients with intermediate risk pulmonary embolism. It was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in April of 2014, so just a few months ago. This was a multi-center, double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial conducted in Europe, enrolling patients at 76 sites in 13 different countries from November 2007 through July 2012. They looked at all patients over the age of 18 with PE with both evidence of right ventricular dysfunction on echo or on CT and an elevated troponin. So they had to have both evidence of right ventricular dysfunction and elevated cardiac biomarkers. This differs a little bit from some of the other papers that we'll look at. They excluded any patients who had hemodynamic decompensation, pregnancy, coagulation disorders, or anyone with a known significant bleeding risk. Patients were randomized to receive either thrombolytics with a weight-based IV dose of tenecteplase or placebo. All patients were given unfractionated heparin and no other anticoagulants were allowed within the first 48 hours. The primary outcome they were looking at was a composite of either death from any cause or hemodynamic decompensation within the first seven days. Their secondary outcomes included confirmed symptomatic recurrent PE, death within 30 days, or major adverse events within 30 days and their safety outcomes included ischemic or hemorrhagic stroke within seven days or major extracranial bleeding within seven days. They enrolled a total of 1,006 patients of whom 506 received tenecoplase and 500 received placebo. For the primary outcome, again death or decompensation in seven days, they found that this occurred less frequently in the tenecoplase group compared to the placebo group. 2.6% of patients in the tenecoplase group versus 5.6% in the placebo group for an odds ratio of 0.44 with a 95% confidence interval from 0.23 to 0.87. So there was a significant difference. And when we looked at this and divided it out by which particular outcome was happening, for death, 
there were only six deaths in the tenecteplase group and nine deaths in the placebo group, so no significant difference. Most of the difference that we saw in that primary outcome was hemodynamic decompensation, which occurred in eight patients in the tenecteplase group, or 1.6%, versus 25 patients, or 5%, in the placebo group. So the number needed to treat overall for that primary outcome was 33. So 33 patients would have to get tenecteplase in order to prevent one either death or hemodynamic decompensation. So for the combined safety outcome of stroke or major extracranial bleeding at seven days, the number needed to harm was 13.7. So you have to give tenecteplase to about 14 patients to cause one person to either have a stroke or a major extracranial bleed. And that's compared to that number needed to treat of 33, which was primarily to prevent hemodynamic decompensation. So a couple of things that stood out to me in this study, one was that these were sicker patients. Again, they had to have both echo findings of heart dysfunction and an elevated cardiac enzyme, and both of those things increase mortality significantly, and that's been shown in other studies. And the other thing, again, was this composite outcome of death or hemodynamic decompensation. In this case, it looked like hemodynamic decompensation was really the driving factor for the benefit that they found in this study, and that really has to be weighed against the harm. Again, extracranial bleeding and stroke occurred more frequently than hemodynamic decompensation did. So it's unclear to me from that if there's really a benefit. So despite the fact that this was a, a large, well-done, randomized controlled trial, uh, I'm not quite sure that it really shows that there's a significant benefit to giving lytics to these patients. So the next study we're going to look at was the Moppet trial. That's the Moppet show! did things a little bit differently than the PITHO trial. They tried to look at a similar population of patients but used a different criteria. So as opposed to the PITHO trial, which was really trying to look at outcomes like in-hospital mortality and risk for decompensation, the MOPIT trial, which was moderate pulmonary embolism treated with thrombolysis, did a couple things differently. As opposed to the PITHO trial, which was looking at short-term more immediate outcomes such as in-hospital mortality or risk of decompensation within the hospital, the Moppet trial tried to look at more longer-term functional outcomes using development of pulmonary hypertension as a surrogate for functional status. And in addition, they tried using lower-dose lytic as a way of mitigating the risk of bleeding. The objective of the Moppet trial was to assess the effects of low-dose TPA on pulmonary artery systolic pressure in patients that had moderate PE. And overall, the study design was that it was a prospective randomized control trial on adult patients with what they defined as moderate PE. The important thing to note here is that, as opposed to the PITHO trial, where they used evidence of right ventricular dysfunction on echo and elevated troponin, the definition of moderate PE for the Moppet trial was really a radiologic diagnosis. So moderate PE was identified as greater than 70% involvement of a thrombus in two or more lobar or left or right main pulmonary arteries on CT scan or by a high probability VQ scan with mismatch in two or more loads. So how that translates into evidence of right ventricular dysfunction and strain is unclear because that's not really data that we had for these patients. 
the intervention in this study was this low-dose TPA. So if the patient was less than 50 kilos, they got 0.5 mg per kg, and if they were more than 50 kilos, they got a flat dose of 50 milligrams, which is really about half dose of what was given in the other studies. And then in addition to this, every single patient got either unfractionated heparin or Lovenox, so sort of standard of care, plus or minus TPA. As we discussed earlier, the primary outcome here, as a surrogate for functional status, they were trying to look at development of pulmonary hypertension. So as we discussed earlier, they were trying to look at a longer-term functional status by using pulmonary hypertension as a surrogate marker for poor functional status. So all patients who entered the study had initial echo performed within two hours of randomization and then had serial echoes in six-month intervals and were followed out over periods as long as 22 months. Pulmonary hypertension was estimated using echo data. A pulmonary artery systolic blood pressure of greater than 40 was used as the cutoff for diagnosis of pulmonary hypertension. 178 patients were screened for enrollment and then 121 were randomized. 61 of those patients were randomized to TPA. At their follow-up, pulmonary hypertension was found in 16% of the patients in the treatment group and 57% in the patients in the placebo, or just the heparin alone group, giving them a number to treat of 2.4. I'd like to take a moment to discuss how surprising some of these results are because there are several previous studies such as a trial out of Italy by Pengodal that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2004 that actually looked at the long-term incidence of pulmonary hypertension affecting functional status in these patients. They had an overall incidence of 4% in patients having thromboembolic disease. And that was following them all the way up to two years. Yes, that was following them for two years. Yeah. It was measured differently in this study. ECHO was not used. These patients in the Italian study all had cardiac casts and additional symptoms to support the diagnosis of chronic thromboembolic disease. But that's just an important consideration when thinking about the study. So the authors also looked at the combined outcome of pulmonary hypertension or recurrent PE. And this was again noted in only 16% of the patients in the treatment group versus 63% in the control group, giving them a number needed to treat of 2.1. The thing that was somewhat remarkable in this study was when they looked at the negative outcomes, the things that we worry about when we give somebody TPA, which was bleeding, they had zero incidence of bleeding events in either their placebo group or their treatment group. Inconceivable! 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 You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Yeah, zero. That That's a pretty low number. It is a pretty low number, especially considering that when I give somebody heparin, I counsel them that there may be bleeding events with heparin alone. Yeah, so that's one of the two big limitations in this study, that they found no bleeding events in either group. I know this was low-dose TPA, but it was still TPA. And even the patients who didn't get TPA got an anticoagulant. We know that these patients are at risk of bleeding and that it happens even in the placebo groups and the other studies. The fact that they had no events in this study makes you wonder how they were monitoring for this. Yeah. Yeah, and we asked our pulmonologist who was actually at the Journal Club with us what he thought about using these PA systolic pressures from echocardiograms as an outcome and, and what did he have to say about that, Maya? Said he doesn't believe it. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much said that it's useless. It has absolutely no bearing on functional outcomes whatsoever. 
And one of the interesting things that he brought up is we were discussing, you know, whether or not we should be giving TPA because of long-term functional outcome, sort of like how we give TPA for stroke, is that we don't think about the immediate outcome in the emergency department, but we think about the functional outcome three months later. I mean, I think there was some thought that maybe we should do this to improve long-term functional outcome for patients with significant PEs as a way of preventing chronic thromboembolic disease, which is a pretty horrible and detrimental thing. But his take on it was, first of all, that it's not really clear whether or not the size of your pulmonary embolism or your clot burden has any real direct relationship on whether or not you're going to develop long-term pulmonary hypertension, and that there's other things like genetics and immune system that are likely much larger contributors to the development of poor long-term outcome. And then he cited that Italian study by Pangodal saying that this is an overall rare event, so even if you follow these patients for you know, over two years, only 4% are going to develop evidence of this. And so whether or not you'd consider giving a high-risk medication in the emergency department may be more important to consider whether or not you're worried about immediate decompensation, but at this time there really isn't enough evidence to suggest that you're going to be improving their long-term functional outcome, and so maybe that should not be factoring into your immediate decision whether or not to lice that hemodynamically stable patient in front of you. Yeah, and I think that's a great segue into the next article which really attempted to do this, the top code study. So the top code study. Treatment of submassive pulmonary embolism with tenecteplase or placebo, cardiopulmonary outcomes at three months, multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial. A nice long title. This was published in April of this year, and Jeff Klein was the lead author on that article. So again, this was a multi-center, randomized, blinded, placebo-controlled trial, so very methodologically sound, conducted at eight different U.S. academic medical centers. They enroll patients with PE on CT scan with normal systolic blood pressure, but with evidence of right ventricular strain, defined as either hypokinesis on echocardiography, elevated troponin, or elevated BNPs. This is not right heart strain and elevated tropids, either of them. All patients were given low molecular weight heparin with either anoxaparin or daltaparin, and patients were randomized to either receive placebo or tenecteplase. They looked at a lot of different outcomes in this study. They used five-day adverse events, which included both PE-related outcomes like death, circulatory shock, intubation, treatment-related outcomes, so death from hemorrhage, intracranial or intraspinal hemorrhage, active bleeding with a drop in hemoglobin, any bleeding requiring surgery, endoscopy, or intravascular treatment. They also had patients come back in at 90 days to look at long-term outcomes. Here they define that as recurrence of venous thromboembolism, poor functional capacity, which they defined using right ventricular hypokinesis or dilation or systolic pressure greater than 45 on echocardiogram, dyspnea at rest or inability to walk 330 meters in a six minute walk test, severe dyspnea defined as a New York Heart Association functional class of three or four, poor quality of life measured by the physical component summary score or a veins quality of life survey. Their primary outcome was actually a composite of any serious adverse event within five days, recurrent thromboembolism in three months, poor functional capacity using any of those classifications at three months, or a physical component summary score less than 30, or a veins quality of life score less than 40. So if you had any of those things, you were considered to have the primary outcome. They enrolled 87 patients, and unfortunately, they had to stop this study early. They randomized 40 patients to tenecteplase and 43 to placebo. 
for that primary composite outcome with all of those different components, they found that 16 of 43 patients had the outcome in the placebo group, so 37%, compared to only 6 out of 40, or 15%, in the tenecteplase group. So there was an absolute risk reduction of 22% and a number needed to treat of 4.5, and that was statistically significant. Of note, during the initial five days, there was one death in the placebo group and one death in the tenecteplase group, and there were no deaths between five days and 90 days that they saw. So the author's conclusion based on all of this was that a single bolus of tenecteplase had a modestly increased probability of a good functional outcome. They do note that the sample size was too small to assess whether tenecteplase increased the risk of intracranial hemorrhage. My problem with this study was this composite of these multiple different outcomes some of which actually seem important. I mean, quality of life measures and functional testing is important, some of which are based on echocardiogram findings. And it was hard to tell, really, looking through the study, which ones really contributed more or less to the outcome. So how many patients had each of these different outcomes? It was very tough to tell. None of the individual outcomes meant statistical significance, and really it was only when you pulled them together that you met statistical significance. I'm not quite sure what to make of it. It was very confusing reading through, trying to figure out which outcomes happened with what frequency. And again, there was no significant difference in the number of patients who died in the two groups. It was a small study. It was stopped early. I'm just not sure quite where to go with the results of this study. I'm not sure that you can say based on this that we really caused a reduction in patient important functional outcomes at 90 days. So Maya, you're gonna bring this all together for us now with a meta-analysis. Yeah. So the meta-analysis that we're gonna talk about is thrombolysis for pulmonary embolism and risk of all-cause mortality, major bleeding, and intracranial hemorrhage, a meta-analysis which was published in JAMA in June 2014. This was a very well done, rigorous meta-analysis. So the authors did a wide search for articles and ended up finding 16 eligible articles. The inclusion criteria for their articles were, they one, had to be a randomized control trial, and it had to compare thrombolytic therapy with a control, and they had to evaluate mortality as one of the outcomes. The trial looked at a primary efficacy outcome, which was all-cause mortality, and importantly also looked at a primary safety outcome, which was major bleeding. Major bleeding was defined individually by all the different studies, so there's not a clear definition of what major bleeding was. So what are the results of the study? So first I think we should discuss the overall results so for all patients with all the different types of pulmonary embolism. As far as the primary efficacy outcome, mortality was lower in the thrombolytic group compared with the anticoagulant group with an odds ratio of 0.53 and a number needed to treat of 59. So that sounds initially pretty good, right? I can give this to 59 people and save a life. That sounds pretty good. But then you have to think about what is the harm of this medication. So when they looked at the rate of major bleeding, they also found that this was higher in the thrombolytic group compared to the anticoagulant group with an odds ratio of 2.73 and a number needed to harm of 18. When they looked specifically at the rate of intracranial hemorrhage, they did find an association of thrombolysis with a greater risk of intracranial hemorrhage with a number needed to harm of 78. 
So what if we subdivide our patients first by age? So you take those patients who are less than 65 and greater than 65. When they look at patients who were older than 65, they found not only that there was a non-significant decrease in mortality, this group also had an increased risk of major bleeding with an odds ratio of 3.1 and a 95% confidence interval of 2.1 to 4.56. I think one of the things that we can conclude here is that if your patient is over 65, there's no benefit in mortality and increased risk of hemorrhage. Now let's sort of get back to our question of whether or not if we have a patient with intermediate risk or moderate risk PE, whether or not this is something that can provide benefit. So this study included patients with all different types of PE. So 10% of these patients had low risk PE only about one and a half percent of these patients had high risk PE. And then the group of patients that we're interested in today and that the other trials that we were discussing addressed was this intermediate risk PE. And that was about 71% of the patients included in this trial. So in this particular meta-analysis, intermediate risk meant a hemodynamically stable patient who had evidence of right ventricular dysfunction diagnosed by echo or abnormalities of cardiac biomarkers such as troponin or BNP. When we look at the results for the specific subset of intermediate risk patients, thrombolysis was associated with an overall lower mortality with an odds ratio of 0.48 and a number needed to treat of 65. And when they looked at risks of major bleeding, this was really comparable to the group as a whole with a number needed to harm of 18. I think this was overall a very well put together study. Some of the limitations of it had to do with clinical heterogeneity in the studies that were included. As we've seen, studies looking at thrombolysis for intermediate risk PE have different inclusion criteria for what is defined as intermediate risk PE. The follow-up duration was different among different studies and then the doses and methods of delivery for the different thrombolytics that were used varied between the studies, including one study that actually used catheter-directed delivery. Yeah, they included this Ultima study, which is an interesting study, but it doesn't belong in a meta-analysis like this. They're comparing ultrasound-directed catheter delivery of thrombolytics to systemic thrombolytics delivered by a peripheral IV. That's like comparing apples and triangles. It's just two different things. Yeah. And in addition, we've already touched on it, the results, especially for the intermediate risk group that we're interested in, were really driven by the results of the PYTHOS trial, which comprised 60% of those patients. Yeah, so as I said earlier, I went into this really optimistic, really wanting to look at this data and have it show that there was a big benefit. And I'm going to be honest, I'm not completely convinced. I'm still a little dubious. I think we've got some very well done studies that have results that don't really convince me that there's a clear benefit. The PATHO trial, we talked about the biggest trial of all of these, didn't show an improvement in mortality. It showed that you potentially could reduce the risk of hemodynamic decompensation. Mm -hmm. You have to balance that benefit with a much higher risk of causing major bleeding. I'm not sure which is more important and we don't really know. You know, certainly if your blood pressure dropped and you had to be on a presser for a couple of days, that might not be as bad as having a major intracranial hemorrhage. On the other hand, if you had to have CPR and ended up in the persistent vegetative state, that might be worse than having a GI bleed that caused you to get a couple of units of blood. So it's, it's hard to compare those two outcomes directly. I think, you know, coming away with this, how do I apply this in my daily clinical practice? 
I think if I had a patient who was under the age of 65 who I thought had a risk of you know, acute decompensation, then I would consider it. But in general, I'd be a lot more afraid to give it for something less proven at this point, such as long-term functional outcome, especially since having something like an intracranial hemorrhage also has a known, proven bearing on your long-term functional outcome. And so if I think the patient is a point where they have a very high probability by what we have now, which is our clinical gestalt and following of their vital signs of dying in the next day or acutely decompensating to the point where they would need something like CPR, then I think you owe them and their family the possibility of that discussion. But my general outlook on the promise of this as a true treatment for you know, submassive PE, I'm a lot more nervous and a lot more skeptical about it. Yeah, I agree. You know, we talked about the two studies that looked at long-term functional outcome. One was using echocardiogram findings, which, as our pulmonologist told us, don't necessarily correlate with functional outcomes at all. And the other was looking at a composite of multiple different measures of functional outcome that some of which may be relevant, some of which may not be, and finding that if you, you know, if you use any of those different things, maybe you have a benefit. I'm not sure that that really proves anything to me. And again, with the short-term outcomes of mortality, it's hard to say. None of the studies individually showed a, a benefit. The meta-analysis did show a benefit, but we talked about some of the problems with heterogeneity between all the different studies that were included in that meta-analysis. You know, I think the thing to really think about is that even though we've subdivided this out into low, moderate, and high-risk PE, even within those subgroups, there's still a lot of nuances that make some patients higher and lower risk. So just because you have a quote-unquote intermediate risk PE, you may be completely stable and do fine for the next several days and leave the hospital completely alive and intact, or you may be someone who's at risk of decompensating uh, acutely, and that may be the patient who's going to benefit, the one who's really at high risk of decompensating, like you said. I wish we could tell who that was going to be. Yeah. All right. Maya, great discussion. Great topic. Thanks for helping put this together. Thanks for having me. And thanks to you guys for listening in. And as always, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EMJ Club. Check out our Facebook page, EMJ Club, and our website, emjclub.com. Hope to see you guys back next time.